All right. So we have David Frick from Rolling Stone and a man who needs no intro, Joe Walsh. Give it up, guys. Thank you. Wow. How you doing? Right. Thank you for coming. Um, it is my honor and pleasure to be talking with uh, Joe Walsh about uh, a bunch of things, including this new record, Analog Man, which you were listening to. It's also available on cassette. Uh, and vinyl. And vinyl. Yeah. Edison wax cylinders. Um, yeah. You were actually mentioning that earlier. Do you have a you? player? <laughs> it came out today. Do they actually make Ed Tracks anymore? No. You can get one on eBay, I suppose. But no, you got it by the, the car that it comes in, and that doesn't <laughs> work anymore. Well, did James Gang records sound better on 8-track, cassette, vinyl? What was your preferred format? 8-track. 8-track. <laughs> yeah. Because it was all about riding. Yeah. You know? Those songs were about riding and cruising. That's right. So how analog are you? You're, you know, we're in digital church here. You have a record called Analog Man. Yeah, I know, I know. How well, analog okay. are you? I, I, I'm not an old uh, fart that came out of the woods, and I'm not a, I'm not a hermit or anything. Uh, and I'm not saying analog's better. I just thought it would be a great theme. This is the first album I've done in 20 years. And, uh... Well worth the wait, I might add. Yes, yes. Can you hear me okay? Okay. So, uh, uh, I know about analog, and I had to learn the digital technology. Uh, those of us from the analog days have had to make adjustments, put it that way. And, and besides the technology, what I'm, what I'm saying with, with the album is that we got this virtual world that doesn't exist, but we're spending more and more time in there. At the expense of other things? While our bodies sit in chairs waiting for our minds to come back. <laughs> you know, and it's an interesting phenomenon to me. Uh, you can get lost in there and we can spend a lot of time in there. Left to my own devices, I would just say that I really like side B. I think that's anything, really right. cool. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at the artwork, and it has the images of the cassette and the LP spines, and I actually recognized the catalog number on one of the spines. ST3350 is Wonderwall music by George Harrison. Oh, <laughs> well, that's good. That's it's sort of just a nice totem to have in there. I think not. Is that your copy? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, th there's two other things that have happened with digital technology and music. One is you can fix anything now, and you can make anything perfect. And that's a real temptation. 
Well, there's also the shit that happens in the middle, which is really interesting, which is the mistakes, kind of the bum, not even bum notes, but the way you can hit a note on a guitar. Well, that Rick, the riff in Funk 49. Yeah. That's not exactly, oh. it, it's not notes. No. It's attitude. No, that, that has a lot of beer in it, that like. <laughs> 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 and, and and you know the the oldies the oldies channel on satellite radio and stuff listening to all that stuff from 54 to about 62 you got a bunch of people in the room and you set up mics and you push record and they did it three or four times and you picked the best one yeah but uh, it's really tempting now to start with a drum machine that's virtual and add instruments that are all virtual, they don't exist, they're in the computer, and build a song up like a kit. And But does that qualify as music? Well, yeah, I guess so. But there's no human element. It, it's not guys playing off of each other. How and much did, well, how much did you have because on the record, you, you did a lot with Jeff Lynne, and he played a lot of drums yeah. and keyboards, and you overdubbed guitars. How, like, how would you characterize the way you guys interacted, the way you had a relationship as musicians in building something as, as two guys, as opposed to, say, a session with the James Gang or an early session with Eagles, where it's a little more sort of player interacting, yeah. you know, four on the floor, or in the James Gang, three on the floor. Well, Jeff Lynn has his way of doing things, and it works well. Jeff has two things uh, going for him that were invaluable to me. One is you can give him something that's unfinished, and you can give him bits and pieces, and he can see the finished thing. He can see where you're trying to go and what it's going to be like when it's done and how to get there. And that saved me hours. The other thing is that you can give Jeff Lynn anything and he can make it sound like it should be on the radio, which is, which is really good. Jeff is an old analog guy, too. And uh, uh, we got along really well. And... Uh, he had ideas as we were going along, and, and as I learned to trust him, because uh, I didn't want to put Joe Walsh sounds like ELO out, <laughs> you know. But when I got to trust him, I, I gave him more free reign. Is there an example it. of something you could just show that, you know, on the guitar that you might have come in with that was in its native state before he started? you know, working a little magic? Well, there's a, song, there's a song called One Day at a Time. Uh, I, I don't know if I can think of anything and pick the guitar up for that particular thing, but there's one, a song called One Day at a Time that's on the album, which is about me getting sober. And, well, thank you. And it, it was actually on the Eagles DVD uh, live in Melbourne, mm -hmm. which was back a ways, and it was some uh, a new song we added, we included in the DVD, but it never was released on any as a record or anything, and it was basically a keyboard song, 
and and Jeff said we need to redo that song guitar based a guitar based song and I said okay uh, how do we do that and he said well let me run with it and he did when you hear it, it, it it's a guitar song now yeah. And much better for well there's one one of the tracks on the record that I found really fascinating I don't know if they had a chance to play it yet but it's the last song on the record um, which features you with uh, the James gang and little Richard called but I know and it was recorded I guess by Ken Heyman was that it is that Summa sound what was the studio in Cleveland recording Cleveland recording yeah which is where all the grand funk stuff was done yeah as well what I is this what is the story about that because that's obviously deeply analog that was yeah. like back when dinosaurs oh, yeah. roamed the earth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a long time ago, the James Gang played with Little Richard and Chuck Berry. We played in the Midwest five or six shows. And we ended up on a day off uh, with Little Richard in a studio. And we jammed. And it was really fun, and I had really forgotten about it, but I was digging around uh, in some old boxes, and I found the tape. And it is Little Richard at his best. Uh, and the, the jam is about 15 minutes long, because he wouldn't stop, basically. That would be Richard, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I edited it down to about seven minutes and uh, you know he's one of the founding fathers of rock and roll yeah. and it's just it's just the James Gang going at it and but it's a little, beautiful bookend to the way the album starts and ta as you say talking about your life now and what you've gone through to get to this point and also connecting it with those roots and there are other aspects of the uh, of that on the record where you play with the guys from barnstorm mm -hmm. as well so yeah. in a sense the record really is it's both a moving forward and kind of an interesting summing up yeah. was that part of your thought or was that just something that developed it went along? Turned, it kind of turned out that way uh you know it, i'm i'm getting a chance to really listen to the songs and not pick them apart now, I'm starting to listen to them as songs, and I, I'm really pleased with it. And I'm starting to see that it, 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 uh, it it's a complete album, you know? And uh, there's bits and pieces of me uh, from analog to digital. The last song on the album is called India. You have the instrumental. In India, my wife and I went to India because we ended up in Australia at the end of an Eagles tour. So we went to India and uh, in Mumbai, we went to a little club and I heard uh, uh, electronica. I love that music, uh, house, trance, uh, whatever, yeah. uh, all of that. Uh, I love what those guys are doing, and loop loops and all of that. I, I don't really know how to do it, but it's some of my favorite music. It's not mainstream. You have to kind of go looking for it. But there's some young people making great music, and I saw an electronica band 
in India perform. And they didn't play instruments, they played laptops. And it blew me away. <laughs> oh my God. So uh, I, I came home and, uh, and I tried one. I made some loops and it's totally all uh, computer music, except I played lead guitar on it. Yeah. And I thought that was a great way to leave it for the last song. Because they really do blend well, because you have the guitar really has that sort of distorted, biting character yeah. that is, is so identified with you. And then you have that really strong locomotion underneath that just keeps pulsing and pulsing while you yeah. can go well, to town it, over top of it. I figured, well, I can make a voice like Darth Vader and say something 123 times. <laughs> <laughs> or I can play guitar, and uh, and it worked. Wise good. choice, yes. But yeah, from starting with Analog Man to full on electronica at the end, I'm just realizing that I did that. But the thing is, even at the beginning, you were very interested in synthesizers in in the technology of records. Like there is that track on the very first. James Gang record, your album, in which you do that version of Stephen Stills' Bluebird, which in the credits it mentions, and I, this might be slight over-exaggeration, wow. that it features about 12,000 overdubbed guitars. And, <laughs> and it's a really great piece because the way you built the guitars over that, the, the different tones, the different, um, just there's, there's a certain grace to the density mm -hmm. of that track that really was about Recording it was not simply about playing. Yeah. yeah. Were there actually twelve thousand guitars on well, it? You, that... You've really done your homework. Have you counted them all? <laughs> uh, uh, that was real hard. To, that kind of stuff is hard to do analog. Because <laughs> you also got to do it all in the same place. Well, yeah. And back then, you know, we had kind of primitive stuff. It's amazing to have been around from. Uh, a mono track tape recorder to stereo. I remember when stereo came out to a four track, to an eight track, to a 16 track, uh, and go through all of that technology and work with it, and now have it all be obsolete. It's amazing, you know, my grandparents saw... No, it's not obsolete, it's exotic. Airplane, airplanes fly and, and cars being invented and stuff. But, but I, you also had the talk box, which you used with um, on Rocky Mountain Way, and that was actually something you used before Peter Frampton did. Yeah. How did you actually stumble on that thing, and what actually, what actually <laughs> was it? Thank you. It was like a talking Wawa. Well, yeah, okay. But you actually sang, it was yeah, almost like yeah, you were singing yeah. through your pickups. I'll tell you what it is. Uh, when the James Gang played Nashville, there was a, a great country singer named Dottie West. Yeah. And uh, she was a friend, and we used to go over to her house, and her husband was named Bill West. And he was a pedal steel player, and he invented some stuff. He invented the first fuzz tone, but never got a patent on it. And he invented the talk box, which is pretty much a speaker. 
okay? But it's enclosed, it's sealed and enclosed. So the sound plugs into your amp, it, it, it plugs into your amp, and the sound is in an enclosed box. You stick a piece of surgical tubing into the box so that the sound comes up the tubing. So your guitar is coming through a piece of tubing. And you put the tube in your mouth. Now, you know the people who have had larynx cancer uh, have a thing that buzzes and, and provides a noise, and then they move their mouth and it modulates the noise so that you can form words with your mouth. That's exactly what I do. So essentially the tube went into your mouth, so essentially the guitar sound is coming into your mouth into and my mouth. out through the microphone. And I'm talking, but I'm not moving air. <laughs> I'm just doing effect. that. And in fact, the guitar starts talking. Well, Bill West, went around out in his garage and dug around and gave me this old thing with a tube sticking out of it and the tube smelled terrible. And, <laughs> no doubt. and he said, here, you need this. And in about 1954, there was a song called Forever by Pete Drake. The steel player. The steel player, and it was a talk box. It was that talk box, and it went back into Bill West's basement for 50, 60, 70, 20, 20 years or so. Did you clean so. it before you put it in your mouth? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Better uh, distortion? Uh, well, I didn't want to, I thought maybe that might ruin the sound, you know. <laughs> uh, but that's what a talk box is. And later, uh, 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 the first time I really tried it was Rocky Mountain Way, the middle part of Rocky Mountain Way. And then Peter Frampton uh, asked me, bank. what is it and all of that. I told him about it, and he, he went on. Because you uh, use it on Spanish Dancer on this record. A little again, bit. Which is nice. Oh, so you again, heard that, it's a huh? nice little you bit of you know, connection there. Yeah. But you yeah. also, it's funny because you talk about you know, Bill West and then you know, passing this thing on to Peter. You also, we also have you to thank, and I believe I got this right, for the 1959 Gretsch Country Gentleman that Pete Townsend plays all over Who's Next in Quadrophenia. Yeah. I have a bad habit of giving guitars to people. That doesn't sound like a bad habit, because those are two pretty great records. I imagine those records might have sounded different with a, a different guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the James Gang opened for The Who when they premiered Tommy in Europe, the rock opera. And Later on, uh, Pete had a certain guitar and a certain amp that he used for Tommy and was trying to move on and write some new music. And was he was usually using, uh, wasn't it a uh, Gibson SG? SG, yeah. and a high watt amp. Right. And it worked great for Tommy, but he's kinda, he got kind of stuck on it and, and kind of stale with it. And uh, it was a Gretsch 6120, and I gave him, I gave it to him, and and, and that's what you hear on Who's Next, and 
the other thing that I did was I gave uh, Jimmy Page. It was a 1959 Sunburst Les Paul. A 1959 <laughs> Les Paul. And that's the bulk of the work of Led Zeppelin is that guitar. Wow. How did you get into this role of being sort of guitar dealer to the stars? That I would think that well, in many ways he, they kind of knew what they wanted, but you actually had a knowledge and almost kind of a prescient notion of what would be good for these guys. These were heroes that uh, I became friends with, and uh, uh, they talked to me. They talked to me about... <laughs> Jimmy Page said, uh, I really need a Les Paul for Led Zeppelin, and I can't find one, because they virtually didn't exist in England. Yeah. And uh, back then, they didn't cost so much. They didn't cost very much at all. The problem was finding them, and I had two, because when we played, like in Nebraska or something, I would hit all the pawn shops. <laughs> and all the music stores and read the, the local paper, yeah. you know, and, and that's how you found them. And so I had two, so I, uh, I kept the one I liked the best and gave him the other one. Which was the one that you kept? Yeah. Which, no, which was the one you kept? Uh, 1960. What was the difference? Uh, the neck. Pretty much the neck. Yeah. The, uh, the 59, uh, that particular 59 had a smaller neck. And, and Jimmy's got kind of small hands. Is the 19, is that 60, is that the one on Funk 49? No. How, like, how, did, no, like, how would the, you get the voicings? Because there is a very specific tone to that opening riff, which you echo, actually, on this record at the beginning of Funk, Funk 50. 50. Yeah. The sequel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, a Fender Telecaster. Yeah, I use the James, I use the Les Paul with the James Gang live. Mm -hmm. But for Funk 49, and so many guitar players have asked me, how did you get that sound? And I used the, uh, the student model Fender amp, which has an eight inch speaker in it. I figure this is a tech play, so you should be loving this. Well, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I plugged a Telecaster right into it. Yeah. And turned it up and played. But it, nobody uses an 8-inch speaker. And that's <laughs> why it sounds like that. Because it's so compressed. Yeah. And there's certain frequencies it just can't do. Yeah. You know? Was there a sense of trying to connect yourself with some of that history in making this record? Because it had been so long, you had been through so much with, you know, becoming sober and the changes in your life. Was there a sense of trying to reconnect all of this stuff so that it's really one guy's story as opposed to the story of another guy who isn't around anymore, who's different? Yeah, when, uh, when I decided, I didn't decide, <clears throat> my wife decided that I was gonna uh, finish this album and put it out. Uh, I went back and listened to a, a lot of the stuff that I had done. Uh, lesser known songs on, on my albums and stuff. And there were two secrets. One was I always played acoustic guitar 
not electric, for the rhythm part. I always played acoustic guitar, and, and that's a, it's, a, it's a great trick. And uh, so I went back to doing that. Uh, and uh, the other thing that I did was <clears throat> plug the guitar into the amp and put a mic on it. And uh, all these guitar players, young guitar players have all these racks of stuff and they want to know how to set the knobs uh, to get those sounds. And I said, well, turn all that stuff off to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and plug into your amp and turn up. So yeah, I went back and, and, and listened. And, and I found a bunch of stuff. The way I used to record stuff that I, I used to make this album. Were you, were you concerned that in writing these songs and, and projecting how your life has changed, what things are different, were you afraid that you might not come off as being as fun and as funny as people really related to you in the 70s? You know, anyone who does an album title, The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get, you know, come on, it makes, make the guy president, let's get it over with. Perfect sense that morning. It was, it it was still early in the morning when I said that. But were you concerned that, you know, there might not be as much of that loopiness that sometimes being serious well, yeah, can have its downside? One of the reasons that it was 20 years uh, before I did another album was that one, Hell Freezes Over happened and the Eagles got back to work. And since then, we've been around the world four times. And I never got any momentum for a solo pod project going. None of us really did. The other thing is that in, in 1994, I had to get sober. I was out of options and I was uh, in really bad shape. And as it happens with alcohol and other substances, gradually you convince yourself that you can't do anything without it. And <clears throat> were you concerned that you were funnier with it? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, but it's just, it's, again, it's sort of like the, the well, one I of would, the things I, that, I, that you people do relate to you is that you did have a very strong, loopy, but also very poignant sense of humor. The, you know, a joke like the smoker you drink, the player you get, actually, that says a lot about, you know, you yeah. know what you want to kind of do with life and, and throw off a lot of the stuff that's unnecessary. Well, those were the days, is all I'll say. One of the, <laughs> one of the, one of the scariest things that ever happened to me was that Keith Moon decided he liked me. <laughs> A double-edged sword. And he decided that he and I were going to just stay up for the whole tour and get to know each other. And I was crazy, yeah. Uh, I partied a lot. There are some stories about me that are pretty funny, some stories about him that are pretty funny. At the time, it was terrifying, but now it's funny. Yeah. And one of my big concerns in getting sober was that I wouldn't be funny anymore. I wouldn't be able to play in front of people without a buzz. I was convinced I couldn't. 
And I had to stop and learn a whole new way of living from the ground up without alcohol and other substances. I, I was, by that, I would say I was very fond of cocaine. And it took as long as it took. Uh, and another part of that was going into the studio or trying to write. I would try and write, and I would uh, get so far with it, and then I would get frustrated because uh, it was starting to get late, and some triggers came in, and my mind would say, well, you know what works, and that's not an option. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to relearn to do all that, and, and all I can say is I'm glad I did. I have a, a life better than I, than I had ever dreamed was possible. I don't know if I'm as funny as I used to be, but... I think you're pretty damn funny, well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned that I can play actually better uh, live in front of people without it. And, and that is has given me... Is there a different me... vibe, like a different... Like, can you... Is there a different buzz playing live now, having that clarity and actually sort of removing that fifth wall? Yeah. Like, what do you play that is, is better? What's the, what's the quality that you think is better and different? Uh, I'm, I'm just more focused. I feel confident now. Uh, I've been married for three years, and, and I, I finally found a partner I didn't think I ever would, but she's the part of me that was missing. And I, I got this wonderful extended family that came along with her. And uh, I have a great life, and I'm sober, and I'm healthy, and I'm confident, and I'm focused. And it, it will not be 20 years until the next album. But thank you. I, I know how to do it all sober now. Yeah. And, and uh, I wish I could have some of those years back, but so be it. And, uh, and there's a lot of stuff I want to do. What is it like having your brother-in-law play drums on your record? Well, he, he had what's, to. What's his his, his brother-in-law is Ringo Starr. He had so to. So I'm curious be. about what it's like <laughs> to have that, as, both as a brother-in-law and a session drummer. Yeah. He had to because I played guitar on his album. So, so he, had, he had no choice. Uh, Ringo is uh, uh, never ceases to amaze me for what he's been through. He is so centered and grounded and focused and down to earth and straight across. And I consider him like a big brother now that I, that I never had. His insight and his wisdom has helped me immeasurably uh, with my life uh, and also, you know, as a musician. Um, I treasure, every once in a while he'll remember a Beatles story and I don't really ask a lot of questions, but every once in a while in a car something he'll remember yeah. some situation. And I, I treasure those those moments, you know. Well, when he plays drum, like he plays on Lucky This Way, Lucky This Way, Lucky and this also way. the band played on. Yeah. Do you give him like 
play this? No. Or, <laughs> no. Just checking. No, 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 no. no, He's, no. He knows the drill. He, he really, knows what to do. Yeah. yeah. Anything he plays is fine with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a human metronome, so you better start the song where you want it to be. So you got to tighten he, up, he right? He ain't going to budge. Yeah. That's where, it, if it's too slow, <laughs> that's where you started it, All right. you know? So. Um, we're going to take some Q&A. The light's sort of in my eye, so I'm going to let the... Okay, the gentleman there with the microphone. Uh, if you got a question, I've got plenty, so this is your chance. How you doing, Joe? Good. My, my name is Gary. Uh, I always considered uh, the Eagles and um, the quintessentially the Eagles when you interplayed with Don Felder. Mm -hmm. Do you miss not having that situation where, you know, I always thought you guys were at your best when you were sort of dueling up there? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Uh, Don and I were, were very competitive. Uh, and we really brought out the best in each other. We really pushed each other. And he would play something uh, really, really good, and it would make me go, oh, yeah, watch this. And we would go back and forth like that. Yeah, uh, uh, Don and I had a special relationship in the way we interacted. And, uh, and sometimes I miss him a lot. Was that kind of your brief when you joined? Because you joined him as that guitar team. Was there some sense of what they expected you to bring? Because you actually had a very, very different style and, and had played in very different contexts to what they had been doing yeah. you know, over those first three and four albums. Yeah. Well, I, they wanted to take... Uh, the country rock kind of stereotype that they had settled into uh, up a notch. Don and Glenn had. And, and they wanted to go in a little bit more of a rock uh, direction. And all I could think about after I heard them a couple times was w with those voices what a vehicle to play rock and roll guitar for, you know? I really wanted to be in a band. I had a solo career, and it was okay, uh, but there's a lot of non-musical stuff that comes along when you're uh, a solo artist, and I didn't like that so much. So uh, <clears throat> I wanted to seek refuge and, and be in a band again. Um, and the Eagles went in a little more of a rock and roll direction, and out of that came Hotel California. But, well, thank you. Thank you. It was a very creative phase that we were all in together uh, in the 70s in Southern California. And, uh, we're very lucky that somebody pressed record. <laughs> very thoughtful. Um, do we have somebody else we out there? We have one right over here on the on your okay. left. 
Hey, Joe. How's it going? Hi. <clears throat> I uh, was in the car the other day, and uh, Rocky Mountain Way came on the radio, and I do what I always do whenever that comes on, and I turn it debilitatingly loud. And um, I noticed it wasn't you singing. It was, a, it was a heavy metal band called Godsmack that redid that song of yours. And I just wanted to ask, what does that mean to you that this band that plays a whole completely different demographic than you do asked you and said, you know, we want our audience to hear this song from, you know, from way back when? Yeah. I didn't really know what to think of that when I heard it. <laughs> what conclusion did you ultimately come to? Well, uh, I, I would just, you know, why in the world would they, would they do that? <laughs> but it, it was more in tune than the one that Ozzy did. <laughs> so that's good, I guess. Uh, he did a version of Rocky Mountain Way that's uh, unique, that was interesting. Very unique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, Delicately no, no, put. I, I loved them both. Uh, it, you know, it's a compliment. I, I never thought about this part of it. I, I, I never thought about being uh, an influence uh, to young musicians. Uh, I, I'm a kind of a, starting to be a senior statesman for my, my generation, and there's a new generation uh, in charge of music now. Uh, there's a lot of young people that are coming to hear the Eagles and me for the first time, I guess because their parents played the music while they were growing up. But they're coming to hear us for the first time, and there's a lot of guitar players that tell me when they were growing up, they heard all the James Gang stuff, or they heard Hotel California and stuff. So I, I never thought about it, but this is a part of my career where uh, uh, I'm in a position like I had heroes and influences. I'm that uh, to some other people. But you also have a track on this record called High Roller Baby that you did with Tim Armstrong yeah. of Rancid. From Rancid. Which is, now know, that's actually that a, nice, that's a nice sort of spread of generations right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you know him? Uh, we have the same lawyer. Oh, only in L.A. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, he had his people call my people, and my people called his people back. And, and eventually, you yeah. pressed record. But he's a good songwriter. He really yeah. is. I mean, he's scary kind of. He's got tattoos and and uh, and uh, his pants are way low. And, <laughs> butt crack sticks out a little about it and he's got a big trucker's chain and stuff but he's a great songwriter and getting to know him we're in two different worlds yeah. but th that was a, a song that he was working on that I kind of sang on a demo and put some parts on and we worked on it from time to time someone else uh, is involved in that it's a girl who's LP who has a LP. deal with Warner Brothers yeah She's LP really good. Is, uh, if you don't know her, you should check her out. LP is, is a, uh, I guess it's okay to say, well, she's a young lady. I was going to say girl, but she's a young lady. And she's written uh, some songs for a bunch of people. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I came across her. Tim said he had written that. Well, what is it about her. you that you're able to get along with so many different kinds of musicians in genres? Generations. This record has Tim Armstrong and Ringo and Little Richard. 
you're in the Eagles, you're still working with, you still do and stuff Crosby with the James and Nash. Game. Like David Crosby and Graham Nash on <laughs> yeah. it. You know, in a way, you actually transcend a lot of that boundary stuff because for a lot of people, you, you use the word classic rock. For some people, that's a prison. It seems like, in a way, being a classicist means you can be just as open to anything else. Well, look. Like, what's your secret? Like, uh, why do you get along with people so well? I, I have uh, amassed a wealth of knowledge in all these years doing what I do. And I've been rich a couple times, and I've been famous a couple times. And at this point, what's left is for me to work at my craft. And, and I'm sober, and I'm focused, and I have all of this knowledge about record making and songwriting and how to do it right so that people come and hear you live and, and go home happy. And uh, that's, that's what I do. I don't know what else I would do. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm back on track, and uh, I guess that's what this album is saying. I'm back. Yeah. Do we? The ultimate analog victory. You're back. Do we yeah. have any other questions, microphone guy? Yes, uh, oh, we have time. Oh, okay, sorry. That's yeah. okay, I'm right over here. We have time for two more questions, and okay. they're gonna be in the back right-hand corner. You're right. Hi. Uh, Hi. It's so wonderful to hear you and your stories, and I, I wish I could ask about 10 questions, but uh, the, the main thing I'm wondering is, um, now that you've gotten back and you've released a new record, uh, have you ever thought of writing a book? Yeah. Good. Please write <laughs> us a book, please. <laughs> Yeah, the problem is, <clears throat> well, I'll put it this way. I think I could make more money by people paying me not to be in the book. <laughs> uh, it would make some people kind of nervous if I really... It's sort of a blackmail scheme. Yeah, tell what really happened, you know. But, yeah, I, I think I blackmail probably Blackmail publishing, that's actually yeah. a really interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. I think I probably should, and, and I don't want to just get a, a, a ghostwriter or whatever. I really want to spend some time on it. Uh, I think I probably should. Have you tried writing stuff down? Did you actually keep a diary or any kind of uh, ongoing thing, memoir at any point? I found a bunch of stuff in the, in the same box that the Little Richard tape was in, uh, and I'm sure there's more. I have a huge warehouse because I, I cannot throw anything away. <laughs> I can't, you know, I just can't stand the thought of anybody else having anything that I have, you know, because it's, I mean, I have, you know, some bikers gave me a, a, a bomb site for a cruise missile to convert it to a nuclear cruise missile because they stole it from a National Guard armory and then the FBI got on them so they gave it to me and that's so cool I can't throw that away do you still have the tank from that album cover no 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 I don't but I did I did no, I have an album cover folks, where I, yeah. yeah but seriously folks I, I rented a tank for a couple days and it was for movies so you could drive it <laughs> <laughs> 
and I was driving it around and <clears throat> I, I loved to like swing the turn around like facing a store window at a red light <laughs> or something and people would be leaving the store fast but <clears throat> when Dick Clark first started the American Music Awards uh, I went up to the red carpet in the tank as a, I don't know why, it seemed like a good idea at I the time. I think that's a perfectly good reason. There was a, it was at Universal Studios, and there was a, a guy with a clipboard with the list of people who could come in that way. And it, the stupidest thing he, anybody ever said to me, he said, you can't come in here with that tank. <laughs> I said, you don't understand. This is a tank. <laughs> I can go anywhere I want. So I, I, he, you know, I, I got in, but I don't, I don't have the tank anymore. But it's well, a good idea. Well, it served its purpose. Yeah, yeah. You got into the gig. Maybe I do have it. I, I don't you know. You look deep in the garage. Yeah. One more question. Oh, got... <laughs> right over here. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Nice to see you. Look great, by the way. Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, those first records with the band were really fantastic. Were really inspirational. And uh, once you left, it just, just of course, n never the same. And I was just wondering what, it, what motivated you to leave the band. And, and of course, you know, everything else you did as a solo artist was great. But uh, as a band, it was really fantastic. And I really could not listen to them after that uh, as a band, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. The James Gang was a three-piece band. Um, on a good night, there's nothing better. And on a bad night, there's nothing worse. There's only three guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was starting to write more melodic stuff. I was starting to write uh, keyboard songs. I was starting to play with textures and stuff. And being the only melodic instrument uh, I couldn't really express myself. And I was playing really loud, and uh, I, I was, I was kind of getting this reputation as a, as a real rocker. And, and I, I just felt, in the big picture, uh, as a musician, it was a small part of the spectrum to kind of specialize in, and I wanted to move on and and uh, and take some time off. We played 325 days one year, and, uh, and what did you do on the other 29? Drank. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I suppose I slept, or yeah. I was driving to the next gig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it just got going really fast, and and uh, uh, I got kind of flustered by it all. The band was doing pretty darn good, but I just I wanted to pull back a little bit and have some time off. And like I say, I was starting to hear things in my head that could not be done with three pieces. With well, the there's that one song, Tend Your Garden, I guess, yeah. on the second record, which yeah. really, that seems to point to yeah. exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and I was the only singer, and, and uh, like I say, on a good night it was great, but on a bad night it was really frustrating and uh, unfulfilling. <clears throat> so Are you going to go out and tour for this record? Yeah. Play these songs? Yeah. 
I sure win. am. It'll be great <laughs> to go out and play some new music and, and you know. Will it be sometime this year? Yeah, it starts right away. The album came oh, okay. out today, so yeah. So it, tomorrow. It starts you're... right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got a great band I found in Austin, Texas, and these guys are, uh, they're really, Austin is a great little music place. It's yeah. this little island in, in Redneck, Texas. Uh, University of Texas is there, and there's a great music scene. Stevie Ray Vaughan was, you know, one of the locals down there. And ZZ Top, of course, uh, and, and these Austin guys are really great players, and they're really behind it, like Levon Helm. They got that Chugwin thing yeah, going. Yeah, I'm sorry he passed. He was a dear friend. I'm still getting over that one. Yeah. But at the same point, they're four to the floor like ZZ Top, and it really kicks me. They're young, and it really kicks me in the pants and makes me play different. Well, well yeah. I, I think that's excellent news. You're here. Analog Man is the record. Um, it's on CD, iTunes, and a cassette if you really want to go the distance. David, thank this you so Joe much. Walsh. Thank you very much for hanging with us. Thank you, David. One of the few writers from Rolling Stone that I like. <laughs> All right, let's keep that applause going, everyone. Let's give it up for Joe Walsh. Thank you, everybody.